You're listening to Fight Stories. Hey, you're listening to Fight Stories Podcast. This is your host, Tyler Morrison. My co-host, John Moses, isn't with us today, but we happen to uh, have a great opportunity to sit down with a UFC legend and WWE legend as well. Uh, <laughs> the world's most dangerous man, Ken Shamrock, is here with us. I'm very, very excited. Thanks for being with us today, Ken. Hey, appreciate you having me, man. Looking forward to... Uh telling some stories yeah yeah that's that's what we do here we just uh, basically we uh, love to talk to all different types of fighters whether it's uh, you know the pro from the top level like yourself or the average Joe everyone has a fight story and uh, yeah we just love hearing the uh, genesis of how these fighters are born and uh, where they come from and just you know hearing your personal journey that's kind of uh, what we're what we're into so yeah like thanks again for for being with us and uh, yeah what, what's going on man you got uh, got some shows happening in Canada right now eh? Yeah, it's uh, uh, Ryan Dennehy, who's uh, one of the comedians in town, along with yourself. Uh, yeah, yeah. I uh, got to meet him a few years, or actually a year back, um, doing a tour up here with uh, Jan uh, Murphy. Yeah, yeah, and no Jan. working with those guys and being able to uh, uh, get to know those guys. And now I'm back up here uh, doing a tour with the London Comic Con. Oh, nice. Um, he's doing some stuff up there. So uh, Ryan went ahead and put a couple other events together for me. So... Uh, here we are, and uh, we got an opportunity to be able to sit down with you and, uh, Perfect. and uh, talk, tell some stories. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things we always ask everyone is, what was the moment where you knew you were born to fight? Like you knew this was your going to be your calling in life. What was that? Wow. Uh, you know, I, I would have to probably not say that it was a moment. I think it was more of a journey. Mm-hmm. Um, I always believed in myself, even going through group homes and, and, and people telling me I was going to be a nobody, I was going to end up in prison or dead, um, traveling through group homes and, and I was a troubled youth in and out of juvenile hall, mm-hmm. uh, always in trouble. Um, but during those times, uh, I was always fighting and defending my turf, defending things that I had or defending what people were saying about me mm-hmm. with other kids in the neighborhood and uh, it was quite early on where I realized that um, I wasn't going to be punked. Like, nobody was going to yeah. get into an altercation with me and walk away with me with me being the one taking all the punishment. Not to say that I didn't get into a fight and, and lose, because I did, because I fought bigger people yeah. at times where I didn't have a choice to pick my opponent. Yeah, yeah exactly. Know, I was a <laughs> 10-year-old kid fighting a 15-year-old kid, you know? And that's a huge size mismatch, oh. just, just in the age, right? Uh, yeah, so basically what it came down to is that Mentally, in my mind, I, I, I figured out early on that, you know, the more difficult I could make it for somebody and more uncomfortable I could make it for somebody when they did pick a fight with me, the less times people would come and try to mess with me. Yeah. So I learned early on, even if it was a 15-year-old kid, you know, you, you found ways to win, whether you picked up a board or whether you bit them in the neck or <laughs> yeah. their ear or grabbed their It didn't matter how yeah. you created pain and frustration for them just as long as it, you were able to do that. Go through you, that obstacle. Absolutely, because if you didn't and it was easy, they'd just come back and do it again. Yeah, yeah, and you moved early on, I guess, uh, if you're uh, from Georgia originally and then to California. Was that like a, um, and like for you moving to a new town, did you become a target because you're the new kid or was that something that you found or? Well, um, you know, like I said, at 10 years old, um, you know, we moved to Napa, California from Georgia. Uh, it was a lot younger than that then, but about around the, the time I was 10 years old, um, I had already been in and out of juvenile hall. I'd been in trouble. And so most of the time, people didn't mess with me. Um, yeah. 
they always had something to say about me, you know, like I was a bad kid, or that I didn't have dead soon, or juvenile hall, which I did, mm-hmm. and not dead, but in juvenile hall, and uh, so I wasn't a, a popular kid, uh, but I was a kid that people didn't want to be around, or okay. hang out with, or mess with. Yeah, yeah, so there's <laughs> a little combination of <laughs> yeah. everything, right? Yeah. And in juvenile hall, did you find that you had people coming at you there too, like you had to, you know, kind of defend your area when you were there, like, because I mean, obviously there's going to be other kids in that uh, situation that maybe are looking for trouble. Did you find that you had altercations as well there? Or? Well, and then it was the same thing. I remember this, and I'll tell a story. I remember my first time I went into juvenile hall, I was 10, and basically they locked me down because all the other kids were 15 to 17 years old, mm-hmm. um, much older. And uh, so they really didn't get to get out much to hang out with them, but there were times that I got out to do chores, like clean toilets and mm-hmm. clean the sink or whatever, and I was in the bathroom and another kid came into the bathroom. And basically grabbed me mm-hmm. and shoved my head in the toilet. Oh shit! Well, because that happened, it was my first times there. What I had to do, and I can't say it here now, but what I had to do was make sure that didn't happen again. Yeah. So I had to go and figure out a way to make sure that kid knew that he wasn't going to get away with that because I would come back and get him while he was laying down, yeah. or while he wasn't looking, and I did. Mm-hmm. I got him, and I made sure that he didn't. That if, if he ever thought of coming at me again, he better make sure that I'm not breathing yeah. because I will come after him like I did that time. And yeah. then next time, I'll make sure he ain't breathing. And I know this is rough talk, well, that's okay. but that's, that's how I thought then. That's how we talk how, on here. <laughs> but, that, but that's how it was when you were in juvenile. That's how it was when, when you're a young kid and you're dealing with older kids and they come and try to beat you up. Yeah. You had to make sure you made a point. Send a message. I'm going to get you, and if you ain't looking, this is what happens because I'll get you when you're not looking because you're much bigger than me. Yeah, and that also... That when you do that, it sends a message to everyone else too. <laughs> it sends a message to everyone else too that you know you're not going to be, you're not an easy mark. This is going to come back around. And well, yeah, I, I think not only that, not only for that guy because he didn't he didn't get out of the hospital for a while, but mm-hmm. not only that guy, but everybody else in juvenile hall looked at me and, and started patting me on the back, saying "Props, kid. Yeah. Props, kid." Then I didn't have to be locked up anymore and separated from everybody because I could take care of myself. Yeah, they knew. Time. Yeah. Oh, that's good. That's yeah. that's interesting. Is like definitely. And so that was one. Of, was that one of your first like major um, age difference like altercations or fights that you had? Like where you were definitely uh, was he five or seven years older than you? Well, I mean, I was what yeah. I was. I was ten at the time. Yeah. And this guy was fifteen mm-hmm. uh, when he went into the bathroom there. So when you're ten years old, if you look at ten, it's much from a, from a mean, teen, even thirteen, as far yeah. as a ten year old. You develop so much more differently. Yeah. yeah. So at, at at fifteen, this dude was a giant to me, you know, and there exactly. wasn't much I could do from keeping my head out of the toilet, but but I made sure, like I said, I I made sure that I went, and it wasn't nobody had to tell me, mm-hmm. nobody had to go, hey buddy, you better go make sure this guy. Nobody did that because the way I grew up in in Georgia and early on, knowing that you had to figure out a way to make sure that nobody would steal things from you or to punk you, and mm-hmm. I learned early on that you found ways to make sure that you can even the playing field, yeah. no matter who it is or what it is, you always made sure that you came out on top. Even if you got your butt beat, you made sure later on you came back and got even. Yeah, yeah, settle, yeah. settle the score and yeah. then people know. Now you have, you had, uh, were you the youngest brother? Or what youngest brother of uh, three? Yeah, I had uh, three old, uh, two older brothers and, and uh, I was the youngest of them. Of course, Frank, people mm-hmm. know Frank as my brother, but yeah. we were in the group home. I was 10 years, 12 years older than him. Um, I was a peer counselor when he came in. Okay. So he wasn't my real brother. He's adopted brother. But my real brother's one's doing life in prison, okay. and the other one lives in Napa, California, and he's struggling. Some 
different things that he had on his life with, with the hard times. But I never grew up with them. Um, yeah. I don't didn't really know them that well. We know each other, but we just mm-hmm. never grew up around each other. So. Yeah, because you were in the, the group home, right? Yeah, so. we went different places. And mm-hmm. so, um, yeah, so it, 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 when you grow up like that, it, it, it tends to um, season you for, for um, the hard world because a lot of these people grew up with a silver spoon in their mouth. And when, when something comes around that's a struggle or, or a life and death situation, they fall apart because mm-hmm. they've never had to deal with anything that serious. It kind of feeds the fire of an underdog where you know you're going to have to fight for everything that you need to get in life. And, yeah. and you expect to. Mm-hmm. It's not like you're expecting anybody to give you anything. You yeah. know that you have to earn or take everything that comes your way. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And so the um, so as you go through this uh, process of the juvenile hall and then you get into uh, – you're in high school – uh, shortly after that, right? Did you end up back in, or did you stay um, in high school for a bit and everything? Well, was... I, was, I was ten years old uh, in juvenile hall. Went through, you know, t- t- twelve different placements. You know, maybe exaggerating a little bit, but a lot. Yeah, right. I mean, a lot of placements. Failed them all. Around. Ran away. Didn't want to be there. Ran away. Um, ended up at the age of thirteen years old at a place called the Shamrock Boys Home. Okay. Now, at this time, because I was always failing, I was running away. I hadn't gone to school from the time I was probably eight, nine years old. Mm-hmm. Um, I hadn't been to school until I was age of 13 where I ended up at the Shamrock Boys Home. And now I was a freshman in high school. Yeah. But I had never gone to school consistently. I was in and out of places. Yeah. Never really stayed anywhere any long, for a long period of time and never really learned anything. Yeah. So yeah. by the time I got to be uh, a freshman in high school, I had no education. I mean, I had a first grade reading level, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, I could do addition, um, two columns. I couldn't do the larger columns. I'm carrying over all the things I didn't know. Yeah. Um, so I was in special ed. Mm-hmm. And imagine being in special ed um, in high school in a small town in Susanville where nobody really knows you. They just know you're at the group home. You're yeah. at that Shamrock Boys home. And when people said things to me, um, it didn't probably last more than a week. There were people realized who I was and that they didn't say anything about me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't take long. No, it didn't take long at all. And so Shamrock, uh, the the home there, that's where you took your last name and then eventually, um, I guess you started training wrestling in high school, is that? Yeah, I did. And um, I'll tell you, when I trained in wrestling in high school, I started, I, wow, I started my... I started my training in, as a wrestler, and when I was a freshman in high school, I quit wrestling. As a sophomore in high school, I went out and I quit. I just didn't, I didn't have the discipline to go in there and do the training. I just wanted to do the matches. Yeah. But they wouldn't let me do that, so I just quit. The only discipline I had to do was play football. Mm-hmm. And let me tell me explain the reason for that. Here I was, an angry kid, failed all these group homes, go to this one place where, where I, sh- I kind of feel like, wow, this is different. Like, this home's different. There's like 18 boys here. It's a multi-million dollar home. I mean, it was just different. And I didn't know whether I would stay or not stay, but it was like, it, it caught my attention. Mm-hmm. And here's the reason why um, I started to change was because um, every other place that I went to um, was you came in and you were a number, mm-hmm. right? And you had your chores to do and you'd earn your days, but no one really wanted to deal with why you were there. Like, mm-hmm. what were your issues? Why are you always getting in trouble? Well, at the Shamrock Boys Home, the guy that adopted me um, and my mom, uh, they really started to try to figure out what the kids were doing to get them in trouble. Mm-hmm. 
And then they would start doing things to help them be successful in life by using the anger and the frustration they had about the things that they were that they were struggling with and turn it into positive things. Yeah, yeah. For instance, I was vicious, angry, violent. I would always externally um, let people know how I felt mm-hmm. by fighting. Yeah. Somebody say something, I hit you. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was I was in your face. You knew what was wrong. Yeah. Whereas a lot of some other guys, they'd smoke dope and they'd listen to music or they would draw. Yeah, they'd you rage out in a different way. You never know what they way. were thinking. They were angry inside. It would come out through drawing or singing or something, right? Someone else's face was your canvas with Me, the fist. Me, it was like, yeah, down. it was <laughs> outward, right? Yeah, yeah. So he had to figure out, okay, how do we help this kid vent his frustration mm-hmm. into something positive. How do we channel that? Yeah, so I tried to do wrestling, but it was really too controlled for me early on. I didn't like all this, the practices. Mm-hmm. You could get rough with people, but there was just a lot of things like you couldn't really, I could get angry and just lose it. Yeah. But football, here's a thing where I learned <laughs> early on, I was like, you're gonna give me a plastic helmet, yeah. plastic shoulder pads, <laughs> and you're telling me I can hit these guys hard as I want yeah <laughs> now all I had to do was learn to play within the rules like the whistle making sure I didn't go and blow yeah. people up before the whistle or be after the whistle play within the rules don't get flagged all those things and that came in time you know I had mm-hmm. my moments but really when I started figuring out that I became important the coaches liked me the parents liked me the teachers liked me they yeah. didn't like me as a person they liked the idea of what I could do on the you're a weapon field. for them right <laughs> now they and again the world we live in is about everybody using somebody for something. Yes. But even though they were using me, I was using them. Exactly. Now I had an opportunity to be able to learn. You have social education. Yeah. I became relevant. Mm-hmm. Like I was important. They needed me. Mm-hmm. But I had to have good grades in order to be on the football field because that's yes. what my dad set down. That we he was the owner at the time of the group home. That I had to have a C average in each class in order for me to be on the football field. Mm-hmm. So here it was that the teachers understood it. Coaches understood it, so they would get in and make sure that I would always have extra help to make sure that I had the grades I needed to be on the football field. That's good, yeah. And so here it was, is that, that they were taking advantage of me, but I was taking advantage of them because now I was getting an education. Yes. And I felt important and relevant, and I got away with things that most people didn't. Yeah. And so here it was, a kid that goes into this place, going to juvenile hall, youth authority, I'm a nobody, no good, to a person going, hey, man, let me show you how to vent this frustration so that you could become relevant and important and still be violent, yeah. still be able to hit people. Yeah, it's controlled violence. <laughs> Just play within the rules. Yeah. And so I learned that, and a lot of education, a lot of other different stories that came with that that educated me on how to play within the rules. But really, that's what it came down to. It's, I mean, you talk about um, a kid that was more into the drugs and more into the singing or the art. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember my mom, this kid got sent home from the school. And he had drawn this picture of uh, all these heads cut off and standing on a pile and he's holding the heads and blood's pouring out the head and it says, kill them all. Yeah. Well, the teacher just freaked out, like saw this drawing and freaked out and sent him home. He's like, dude, you need to put this kid on medication. Yeah. He's going to kill people. Like, it was a drawing. Yeah. Right? But because, you know, you're talking back, you know, 79, 80, yeah. you know, it was like, it was like, that kid just drew that picture. They thought that was the devil. But it was good. Like, that drawing it was, was good really art. good. Well, my mom looked at the drawing and goes, hey, that's really good. Right? And like the kids are like, what? Like, <laughs> we need to get this kid in an art program. Yeah, not the actual, yeah. the, the concept the, the of the drawing, yeah. but your, your lines in the drawing yeah. is very good. <laughs> and so what they, the, the, the moral of the story is, is that what ends up happening is, is this kid eventually ends up drawing an addition 
to the house mm -hmm. that they were building on. He was able to draw the addition, teach him how to do all the measurements, oh, wow. be able to draw that stuff together, make the actual thing that was getting him in trouble become positive, like with me. Yeah. The vicious and the angerness I took out of the football field. It's now all of a sudden this anger and this viciousness he had by drawing all these dead bodies and heads <laughs> cut off now is generating into something positive. Yeah. And now all of a sudden this kid goes to school and becomes an architect. Mm -hmm. All because someone said, hey, I see, I see the potential in you. Yeah. Not the opposite where I see what your anger is and I'm going to dwell on that. Instead mm -hmm. of that's good. The drawing, the lines, everything really good. Let's generate them something positive. Mm -hmm. So then you took, so you took your your football, and you been you were pretty successful with it, yep. right? And then was it an injury? I think that uh, that I recall there was an injury that uh, kind of sidelined uh, scholarships or whatever. Was that what was happening? Or? Yeah, my senior year, and this is what I say to everybody when I do motivational speaking is like, you know, we can go through life and have a lot of positive things happen. Mm -hmm. But what do you do when something negative happens? Like for me, here I was, uh, a nobody on my way to probably prison or maybe dead, uh, into being able to taught how to vent my frustration and anger to something positive. Now I become relevant, important. Mm -hmm. People want me, they like me, all because I could do something. And now all of a sudden, one day I go into the wrestling room and I break my neck. Oh, it was a ne yeah, it was a neck injury in wrestling. Now, you know, when you think about this, everything that I was, and that I had become was all because I was good at something. Mm -hmm. Now I'm being told that I can't have that. Yeah. That that thing that brought me out from all of that trouble and all of that nonsense that I was going through into positiveness is now being taken away from me. Mm -hmm. And I'm just thinking to myself, wow, that's not fair. I was like, I did everything right. I mean, I, I, I stuck to the grades. I did everything. I had scholarships, people looking at me for scholarships. Why is this happening? This ain't fair. And started to get depressed at the hospital when I was told I'd never play contact sports again. Yeah. And I remember my father said something to me. He goes, you know, you can either lay there in power or you can do something about it. Mm -hmm. And he says, you are the only one that can change the outcome of this. Nobody else can do this. Nobody else can change this. Only you can. Only you have the power to change this. It's whether or not you're willing to do that or not. And I remember thinking to myself, he's right. This doctor's saying I'm going to play contact sports again. But he don't know me. Yeah. He doesn't know what I'm willing to do to get to where it is I want to go. He has no idea what kind of determination I have. How is he able to tell me that I can't do something when I know I'm capable of doing it. No matter what happens, I can still get better. I can heal from this. Yeah. There's a broken neck, right? So my yeah. dad's not thinking that part of it. He's just yeah, telling yeah. me. But, but this is how I took it. So you put the doctor in an ankle lock, right? Yeah, right. No, I need my neck fixed first. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I go through surgery. I get my neck fixed one year, a year and a half later, one and a half years later, I'm on a football field playing college football at linebacker. Incredible. At the end of the year, I'm All-American. And you got invited to uh, the Char Char Chargers? I actually had a tryout with yeah. the Chargers a couple years San after San Diego that. Chargers. Because I couldn't get into a university after college. I was mm -hmm. good enough to go play at a, at a state. Yeah. But I couldn't pass the SAT. Okay. Because remember, I was a special ed. Yeah. The teachers helped me get grades, and then I went into junior college, and... They helped me with the grades, but I couldn't sit down and take a test to pass it. I understand it, but like elite athletes in in school in high school do get a little bit of like an extra yeah. push from the teacher. I had a buddy. I mean, he 
was not going to graduate high school, and, but he was so good at hockey. One of his, one of the teachers, like, listen, Jeff, uh, you come and take a bunch of scrap metal away from my house, and yeah. you're going to graduate. You and know? it didn't help me when it, when it, when it, in the in the larger picture, it didn't help me really be able to get to the next level to play college ball and be able mm -hmm. to go on and play pro. Yeah. You know, I cut out the state college and went ahead and walked on, had an opportunity to go in with the Chargers, but that time I also had a lot of opportunities to go do something else, which is pro wrestling and then fighting. And this is when you went to Japan? Yes. Amazing. So yeah. this is kind of where it all kind of started for you, like the actual like MMA side of it, right? Yeah. You go, I, I was reading up a little bit about it, but uh, um, you know, I followed your career, but going back and seeing... I guess you, you were doing the wrestling thing in Japan, and was it they were telling you that, that uh, no one would want to watch a real, like, a non, uh, was, it, was it, I guess, a predetermined outcome wrestling match, and you guys went and proved otherwise? Yes. Is that Yeah, well, a lot of, of times evolved? people were talking about how, you know, wrestling was fake, and, you know, in that, you know, people don't watch that stuff, and uh, a real fight would be boring and that pro wrestling is fake. So no matter what you said or depending on who it was, it wasn't good enough. No matter whether it was real or whether it was entertainment, it was always somebody always putting it down, right? Yeah. One way or the other. And so we went out and we did this thing, um, the UWF, where we went out and we actually had real fights, mm -hmm. almost in a pro wrestling style. And um, it took off. I mean, it was huge. And then every now and then they would do these work fights. Yep. Um, and then is half of them were shoots, half of them were work. You couldn't tell the difference. You couldn't tell the difference between one real and which one, which one was. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so it went on. That went on for a while. And then me, Fanaki, and Suzuki. Um, I remember actually Fanaki was the one that came to me and said, we want to start a shoot league where it's real. Okay. And we're going to start the, the pancreas mm -hmm. and start the uh, shooting where it's real. And I'd already shot for real in, in these other organizations. Yeah. Some of them were real, some of them were works. But Was, but, it, was there one I was – I read about this one. There's a guy that was supposed to be not like a real thing and then he kind of went too hard. And well, that was he, in Pancrase. Oh, that was I in Pancrase. Yeah, I had – and I, I don't want to get too much into that because okay. of legal stuff. But yeah. But there was there was two, two times where I had – had to because someone was sick and mm -hmm. had a tooth pulled and you know, other whatever excuses that were made that that I mean, he wasn't in full strength so I had to do something and so I was the one that was able to ha I had to do it because I was a champion I mean I was a no yeah. one could beat me at least at the time um, there's no way he could have beat me so um, I had to do that you know, I was asked to do it and it was a Japanese organization and there was nothing I, I couldn't say anything to know or yeah but um, I know that they had mentioned one time about um, doing some other stuff, and I refused. I said no, mm -hmm. because it wasn't a Japanese guy. I wouldn't do it. I'd do it. If I had to, it would be a Japanese guy. Yeah. Because the organization, okay, if that's what it is, that's what it is. But I won't do it for uh, a foreigner. I would not put a foreigner over like that. Mm -hmm. And so there was a little bit of that. But like Pancras, um, from the beginning to the end, were all shoots. Mm -hmm. They were all shoots other than, like I said, the the the, that, the that time that I had to do that, and it, it, it bothered me. I didn't want to do it. But, you know, when the top guy comes down and asks you to do something. Yeah, it's tough. Know, and, and what was the culture shock like going over there from being, you know, you kind of came out of, what was like your level of uh, popularity over here before you went over there? Like, it was just kind of, you got popular over there? And then, I wasn't popular here. I did a few yeah. wrestling matches and. But nobody knew who I was when I went over there yeah. in Pancrase. After we started Pancrase, yeah, um, is where the popularity really started to grow because um, 
we were fighting. We, there was no joke. Yeah, I mean, yeah. obviously, when I, I fight certain guys that come in and they didn't have a whole lot of experience, they would tell us to carry them a little while. Like, yeah. hey, make it go 10 minutes. Yeah, yeah. So we carry it 10 minutes, but the real guy won. The real guy was supposed to win one. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and the other guy didn't know that it was that we were carrying him. Yeah. Uh, we just made it exciting. Like myself, Fanaki, and Suzuki were the three guys um, that were that good. You're almost toying with the guy the we whole time to, just to keep it entertaining. Until these guys could catch up mm -hmm. and to be able to give us competition, we had to at least go in and make the fights look competitive. Yeah. Because uh, there was only three of us, myself, uh, Fanaki, and Suzuki, that were really good enough to be able to just destroy it. We fought each other. It was different. We could go after one another, right? Yeah. Um, but if it was, you know, some of these other guys that were just starting out, we can't go in and hurt them. Yeah. We won't have any competition. It would ruin the organization. Yeah. So we had to we had to carry guys a little while, mm -hmm. you know, a year, year and a half, until guys got good enough to catch up to us to where we could have competitive matches. For sure. And so this so this evolves, and then this puts you on the map in the MMA world, and then UFC kind of comes along. Is this were they on to you before? Like they they've been scouting you, or they knew that this was gonna some something they wanted you for right away? Or did well, you UFC to... came in and basically put up flyers, and they were looking for just people to volunteer. Yeah. And a student of mine, Scott Bazak, actually saw one of the flyers and said, "Hey, look at this," and I was like, "That's fake." Because it said no holes barred. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that's fake. And he's like, no, no, this is real. And I was going, no, that's fake. It's no holes barred. It's wrestling. And he goes, no, this is real. <laughs> I, said, I kept looking at him going, dude, don't you know? He says, no, this is real. Like it's. And so I called the number and Art Davies picked up. And sure yeah. enough, it was real. I mean, he said anything goes, kick him, punch him. It's all there. I didn't believe him. Yeah, I love how Art Davies gets on the phone with the guys right, like on the early. On you, you know, you'd probably never be able to reach Dana White just right. from from uh, unless you're tweeting or something. But uh, back in the day, we we had Gary Goodridge on the podcast, and he was saying like all of his buddies were watching UFC, and they just see the hotline, they just start calling. They're like, "We got a guy here who can fight," and right. next thing you know, it's Art Davies on the phone, and <laughs> so it's it's really funny the the accessibility of the UFC at the ground level and how it just kind of blew up from there so yeah just finding fighters i mean yeah uh, they imagine how many people they had to flip through to find guys that were legitimate because right? mm -hmm. mm -hmm. i mean everybody calls in and says they're tough but now you got to send tapes and yeah. i didn't have to do that all i did is tell art davies hey i fight over in japan he goes well, what do you mean i said i fight over in japan it's called pay grace um look it up that wasn't you know 30 minutes later he was back on the phone and said you're in that's amazing <laughs> you're exactly what we're looking for <laughs> you know and so that first UFC, you go in there. What what are you thinking about this whole thing? Like, what's what are your thoughts going into the first ever? Uh, it was a tournament style, right at the time. Yeah. So, yeah. My thought on it was it wasn't going to happen. Like when I went from Japan, I defended my title, mm -hmm. knocked out uh, Fouquet with a knee. I get on a plane three days before the event, and I fly with my crew from Japan to Denver, Colorado, three days before the event. It's a mile high. Right? Mm -hmm. So in my mind, I'm not really preparing for a fight. Yeah. I'm preparing for them to say, okay, this is how it's going to go. Yeah. Because it's no holds barred. Basically, anything goes. And I'm thinking, that's just doesn't, not, it can't happen. Seems surreal. Yeah, it can't happen. Uh, not in a world that we live in. It can't mm -hmm. happen. And so we get there in this press conference, and I start looking at all these guys, and I'm like, this is a joke. <laughs> like, you know, there's probably Zane Frazier and, and Art Jimerson. And those were the only two, and Gerard Godot. Those were the only three guys I looked at and said, okay, those guys got backgrounds. Yeah. But the rest of them, like even Hoist was walking around in jammers or yeah. gi, but yeah. they were like jammers to me. And I was like, 
who are these guys? It's a motley crew of right. people brought in from all over the and world, I'm right? I'm like, what is this? You're like, what did I get myself into? A tough man? Like, is yeah. this really like... <laughs> So as the thing goes on, and I'm thinking to myself, this is a joke. I'm embarrassed to be here. Like, yeah. This, this isn't real fighters. And as it started to go, we started getting the rules, and all of a sudden, my eyes are perking up. I'm like, mm -hmm. this is real. They're going to let it happen. And so I'm thinking to myself... All of a sudden, as I'm starting to get more confident, like, this is going to happen. We're going to do this. This is like a street brawl. <laughs> and they're going to let it happen. I'm like, man, this is great. This then is all awesome. of a sudden, here comes the rules. Oh, okay. No eye guys and no biting. Okay, cool. No problem. Yeah. But you don't get you don't get disqualified if you do it. You yeah, can yeah. keep going. It's just... Okay, cool. Well, here's the part that really got my, me and also Zane and a few other guys was they started taking away our equipment. Yes, the shoe thing yes. was a big thing for you because that you, that gives you leverage for your wrestling. And grappling, spinning around on the ground, it gives me traction. You know, yeah. obviously, if you train without it, you you learn how to do that. Obviously, yeah. I did. But to have it taken away the day before the event and not ever being able to go without them. Yeah, you need to train with it, it to get like used to the canvas. Ice. To get used to the canvas. Yeah, and, mm -hmm. it was like being on ice, and so I didn't realize that. And then they took away Zane's shin guards, which. You know, if you're not a Muay Thai guy, you put shin guards on. Now you kick a guy in the head and not hurt your shins. Yeah. It's like putting a glove on. I can punch you in the head and not hurt my hand. Yep. Right? So uh, they were doing a lot of those things to try to, you know, bend things in their favor. But when they were taking away the pads from yeah. from um, Zane and then taking away my shoes, and then they were actually allowing Art Jimison to wear a boxing glove. That was weird. Yeah, the right? one boxing glove. But, but not taking away a guy's shin guards. Yeah, yeah. Right? You're thinking, okay... Yeah. But now they're lying to a guy where they, they go in. It's like, okay, well, what's going on here? Yeah. Then the gi was allowed. The allowed hoist to wear the gi. Yeah. So you look at it and you go, wait a minute. They're, they're, they're trying to, to spin this in his favor. Mm -hmm. But to me, because I was so cocky and so confident, <laughs> I just ignored it. I just said, I'll beat him anyways. Yeah. Not knowing how that it, be, it, it could be. become a factor in yes, the fight, and right. it did become yeah. a factor in the fight if you've uh, right. Because followed when the I history tried to sit back for the legs, my feet were slipping. I couldn't mm -hmm. get grip to push off in order to get him off of my back when he yeah. was trying to get the choke. And I was literally my feet were slipping trying to push out, and I couldn't get out. Yeah. So that allowed him to be able to finish that choke. Mm -hmm. So it did become very significant. So that's why in the next fight, um, when I fought him, that's why it was so different because I was able. To for him yeah, and I yeah. beat him up. And you have like a mental edge going in. There's no surprises. There's no, no variables. Other than them putting in a time limit. <laughs> yes, they did do that. The, yeah, the 30 saved minute, his butt. Thirty minute time yeah. limit because you prepared for like a three hour three fight. hour fight. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So so that gets uh, so the second so that's the was that the second UFC or the third one that you came went against him the second time. I think it was three, maybe it was yeah. five. I don't remember. I broke my hand because I couldn't go in number two. Yeah. See that one right there. Yes. That's what I broke, and it was in training with Burning. And, wow! Uh, if, you, if you're if you're listening to this, it's a yeah. big man. <laughs> yeah, it's like a third. It's like a uh, sixth knuckle on the back of my hand. Yeah, <laughs> my back hand sounds like punching with my knuckles. Oh man! <laughs> yeah, that's a you know that's a big thing. But at first I broke it with Vernon, and then I broke it against Brian Johnson the second time. Lead singer of ACDC? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Tough kid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, so that that's the reason why I have so much, um, I guess, um, frustration towards Hoist as a person. Yeah. Not as a fighter. I think what he did was tremendous. I mean, mm -hmm. he was a, he was phenomenal. 
but I don't respect him as a person um, because we, when we did our third fight and me being the groin, mm-hmm. his comment was, well, he should have known, man. That's where we used to fight. And I was like... Yeah. Do you, th- do you feel that he was lobbying for those those rules to be in his favor beforehand, before these fights, and that's what why he was able to get away with... Like, they allowed that? Is, well, do you think he, that- he, I think he was... Uh, especially when um, the time limit came in, you could see the outcome of the fight. Yeah. If there wasn't no time event, he would not have made it. He wouldn't it. have won, yeah. yeah. He wouldn't have made it. He didn't win anyways. Yeah. But he wouldn't have made it out of the ring, yeah. right? So um, I think they, they knew uh, ahead of time that I wasn't a guy that was going to get tired. I already had a 46-minute fight under my belt. Mm-hmm. So they knew I was a guy that could go the distance, that I could continue to keep fighting for a long time. Yeah. And his only way of getting out of it was to bring it to a draw without losing, even mm-hmm. though he lost. But it was because there's no judges, it's put down in the record books as a draw. Yes. So they save face. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why they did it was to protect themselves. That if it did go that far and that I was fresh, my strength would overtake him. Yes. That he would be able to stretch it out far enough into a draw. Mm-hmm. And, and he was able to do that. Even though he got beat up severely, it's still a draw. Yeah. So then you, so this continues, UFC continues to evolve, rules kind of changing shaping itself into what it ha- what it's kind of become right. gets a little bit closer to that how do you find um competing in it in uh, future installments like as you become you're the the guy that people you're the guy people know you i feel like out of all those people you were probably definitely the most marketable uh, star out of that especially out I of that the era. Face. you're the face yeah. and and i mean my brother and i we used to rent it on vhs back in the yeah. day when we were kids we knew ken shamrock People knew first you. First person to be put on a cover of a UFC cover. I was the first one to be on the cover. That's amazing. And so and so you you keep fighting in this. Um, you beat is Dan Severn was a was yep. a, was a big Severn one. After he came out of the Ultimate Ultimate, I choked him out. Mm-hmm. Beat him. And, and what was it like fighting Severn? Like, cause he's he's a wrestling background yes. too, right? right? So it was kind of you have that skill, but you also have these other skills that you've acquired. Right. Do you find that he was um, more one dimensional in that? phase and you were able to because you had multiple you know multiple martial arts there was no way he could beat me yeah i knew that i mean i was so confident going in that fight even though i wasn't favored he was because mm-hmm. he won the ultimate ultimate um and i was the champion sitting at the champion and i fought whoever won the ultimate ultimate yeah and when he was coming in in my mind i was like how is he, he can't beat me he's like the only way he can beat me is i fall trip and fall down and break my arm or something he's yeah like, he can't beat me because what he's gonna do wrestle me to death mm-hmm. it's like wrestling you just lay on guys right you can't pin me because if you pin me it don't mean you win so I'm thinking to myself how is he going to beat me because he's not going to be able to maul me and just beat on me it's not going to happen and that's the early the the earlier version of uh, UFC definitely where you start seeing the the mixed martial arts take over the one dimensional unless someone's a really good puncher right right exactly right and he wasn't like I said yeah he didn't have that no and so I was just saying to myself how is he going he can't beat me so I was very confident going into that fight was there anyone from that era that you were particularly wary of for any reason? Um, maybe just a stylistic difference, or it was just he was a you know? No, there was uh, like I said, and I mean I was so confident. That's um, good. In yeah. my skills that the only time I ever got worried about a fight was when I started getting injuries and I couldn't train the way I needed to. I of knew course. I wasn't prepared. Of so course. it wasn't about the other fight. It was more about me. Yeah, you don't want to be thinking about something that's, right. you know, oh, what if I if I do this, I can't do this. Or yeah. I didn't train hard because I could. I was injured through training. Yeah. I didn't get good workouts and I'm going into this fight not prepared. Of course. And so that was a lot at the end of my career. There was a lot of my thoughts like that. Mm-hmm. I was just very 
walking in very timid and not confident in my abilities. It's a it's a totally different beast. Yeah, to be able to be prepared as you know, you're a warrior going right. in there, and yeah, you don't want to have those uh, those handicaps. You know, you don't want any doubt, man. Exactly. No doubt. And early on in my career, when I was fighting and winning and champion. There was nobody you could beat, not even Hoist. In your head, going into a fight, you just go, "I'm gonna go right through this guy." Yeah, that's your, I, that's I your mindset. I win. There was no way a guy could beat me. There's mm -hmm. None. And even with Hoist, once I figured the gear out, I was like, "There's no way he could beat me. Yeah, he can't beat me because he can't outlast me. I'm more, I'm better shaped than him. I already proved that. Yeah, that I'm in better shape than he is, and that his submission skills are not any better than mine. Even though I've been doing a lot less than him, but my level of submissions are so much better." Yeah. There's no way he can outmove me, outmanipulate me in the submission area. So there's no way he could beat me. So I was able to pound on him and beat him up for 36 minutes without even worrying about his submission hole. Yeah, sitting in his guard, <laughs> sitting in his wheelhouse where that's where he's supposed to be the best. Yeah. And so and so through this whole this whole process, I, you know, you you're the top dog for a while there. And then did you when did when did you switch over to Pride? Was that after you went to WWE? Or was it during? No, it was after I'd gotten out of there, and I did, and I had actually worked a contract with Pride for a three-fight deal. Okay, so it was after WWE. Yes. So, so yeah. you go to WWE next, and it was was it because of an injury or just no, because because they couldn't the, pay me? Oh yeah, they were running out of kind of running out of fumes there, and then WWE obviously is the you know the safe bet to yeah. go in, and to, to be honest, I think that helped popularize you even more. To the mainstream, that that made you much more bankable. Not just me, but the world of mixed martial of arts. Of mixed martial arts. When I remember when it happened, it was like it was very cool to see that uh, that crossover. crossover yeah. And uh, no one had done that before. I believe that's an no. innovative move. Um, obviously, the special guest referee, Stone Cold Steve Austin, yeah. and uh, Bret Hitman Hart, WrestleMania 13, legendary match. You're right there for that. That's pretty cool. And then uh, what I think people forget though is that um, the significance that it had. For me to cross over into pro wrestling mm -hmm. and for pro wrestling back into MMA. Yeah. The significance of that and how it drew so many more fans. Absolutely. And that I believe that people just tend to overlook that. Even now when you see Ronda Rousey and Brock Lesnar and it opened the doors that are doing it now. I mean, you think about when I did it, people thought I was a sellout. Yeah. They yeah. didn't like the idea that I was going to a fake um, competition. It was a much different I breed of fan chance. now. Yeah, I took then. a big chance on people um, throwing me away mm -hmm. and not respecting me. And yet, when I did it and it became very successful, yes. people accepted it. And now that we are where we're at with it and people are able to do it, there is absolutely no one that is, it's other than my book that's coming out that recognizes the reason why they're able to do those things today. Yeah, they should. No, that should totally be credited because, yeah, if you look at how Rousey's been able to successfully do it, but I bet you she wouldn't have had maybe the, the confidence to do it if you hadn't have done it before. The the trail that was there. Lesnar, too, I mean, did, did he start in MMA? Or he's a wrestler He before. was a wrestler first, Olympics. Did, and, he, did, yeah. he did pro wrestling, and then he saw me. And then he and came in. mixed martial arts, and then he said, hey, Shamrock did it, I can do it. Yeah. So, in the same like with Ronda, there's no way that people go, hey, I'm going to go into pro wrestling if it hadn't been done first. Yeah, it could have. It, it wouldn't have known. It was definitely a roll of the dice because it could hurt your reputation. Yeah, and, absolutely. And, and, uh, but, but or you, even if I don't make it and it doesn't work well, yeah. like it just completely if falls you bomb over and wrestling, hated it, if right? you bomb in WWE, it's gonna be it's nobody gonna else hurt. is gonna go. They're gonna yeah. go. I ain't doing that. Yeah, that, that looked bad. There was <laughs> that too, didn't go well. too much backlash. That didn't yeah. go well. <laughs> but you coming back from WWE with a whole bunch of new eyes yes. to the sport, revolutionizes the sport, and uh, is kind of right as it's uh, you know taking off. Well, you came back. You did the Pride fights, right. and we'll, and we can talk about those. But 
when you came back into uh, WWE, what 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 year was that? Or well, not I went WWE? Back into sorry, UFC. UFC yeah. Sorry, that was early two thousands. Yes. So you come back in, and that's right when the Ultimate Fighters taking shape, um, and things are starting to. It's getting on spike. It's getting in front of people's eyes. The switchovers happen now with uh, Dana's taking over. Yeah, because what happens is Dana's already there. Mm-hmm. Tito's their champion. Tito's the face of the organization, yes. right? And Chuck Liddell is still down up there trying to make his way up because Tito's there. Yeah. So Dana needs to figure out how he can build the organization because they're dying. Yeah. They're literally thinking about closing the door, selling it, trying to get rid of it, do something because they're not making money here. So what they do is, is Dana comes to me and asks me, hey, are you interested in fighting? Because I was over in, J- in Japan and I had my last fight. Yeah. And he asked if I'd be interested in fighting Tito. And I said, well, my knee's messed up. I got to have surgery on it. I said, but yeah, it'd be interesting. He said, yeah, but when we need this to happen, you know, can maybe you can uh, fight Tito first and then we can fix the knee or, or something like that. And mm-hmm. I was like, all right. So we worked out a deal which didn't happen the way it should have happened. Um, so I go in there. The organization's dying. Yeah. Right. Tito's probably bringing in anywhere from twenty to thirty thousand buys. They're yeah. not making any money. I go in there and I rekindle our fuel. Mm-hmm. The, the the rivalry that we have between Guy Mesger and the things that happened with uh, with Tito and Guy in the early, early months, on, right? With the Rivaling T-shirt the and fans, stuff. And I started pointing the finger at. Yeah. And we created that. Well, I rekindled that. Yeah, and they, I started going after Tito, and Tito came back at me, and so there's Tito, now a rivalry, and people love rivalries. Yes, and it builds. Uh, the and they already knew the rivalry was there, so when I went back and yeah. I started going after Tito, Tito bit right back into it. Tito was perfect opponent for it. He's a great trash talker. Yes, and, and he's a, he was a good fighter, man. Yes, so it's like you you have two very legit. It was it stars, perfect, and yeah, and and you have the. Uh, the guy that you know, everyone knew you, and Tito's gonna get over because he has you. It's like WrestleMania when uh, Piper and Hogan. Yes. You, Hogan you hand the Hogan to does not happen without Piper. Right. So you gotta hand the torch. Yeah. So here was Tito. Um, they couldn't pull in by rates. They couldn't get an opponent for him. Nobody mm-hmm. could match up with him. Uh, Tito had the gift, you know. I mean, he'd yeah. Have, but he just didn't have that that uh, adversary. Yeah. That he could draw, like I did with Hoist, and yep. I had did with Kimo, and Kimbo Slice, and Kimo, and Dan yep. Severn, and he didn't have that. So here I was, I was older, I wasn't in my prime, so I stepped in there with the idea to be able to help save the organization. Mm-hmm. It wasn't because I wanted to go in there and beat Tito, although I wanted to beat him, course. no question. But I also knew how old I was, and that I wasn't the same kind of fighter yeah. fighting a guy that was probably at that time, pound for pound, the best fighter in the world. You're taking a gamble. Big time gamble. To, yeah. to save this organization because it's my DNA, it's my history. You help make it, and it helped make you. Yes. Same thing as you know the the group home helped make you, yes, you know, it, or the or the the football helped make you know all that. It was an idea yeah. that it was Tito and me, and we started putting it together. And by the time that we did our first fight, best damn shorts girl coach basically gave us rivalry of the year. Uh, we were in the mainstream organization. Everybody was watching it. It blew up. By the time we got done with that fight, at the end of all of it, it was around 150,000 buys as opposed to 30,000 buys. Incredible. The one after that we did, we did close to a million buys yeah. in the next fight. So Amazing. within a year, a year and a half's time, they went from 30,000 buys to over a million it's buys. Skyrockets. Because I was able to come in there and be able to light a fire under Cheeto and create that rivalry and kindle... The, the fan base mm-hmm. to be able to start getting excited about something that meant 
uh, the world to an organization and the numbers for that organization to yes. survive. Mm-hmm. And so, so when you come in there and uh, and you you start getting f- fighting back into UFC a bit, um, the Ultimate Fighter start, it starts to take off. Um, you're now you're coaching a little bit too, right? You started your coaching school. Right. What's it like taking um, a young student now under your wing and like building them up into uh, into the levels where you've been able? To, you've had a lot of people that were. Um, under you that have been very successful. What, what's it feel like to pass that on the way that you've had mentors pass it on to you? Well, first of all, I'd like to say that um, when, when uh, bringing those fighters in, they all had to pass a tryout, and it was a rigorous tryout. And because once I knew that they were able to put everything out on the table and do everything they could to be on the team, the Lions to train them, exactly. Yeah. So um, that tryout was important to see whether or not I would be able to train them. If they passed that tryout, because how tough it was, I knew I could train them. They could be good. What does it What does it entail? Is there any? Uh... Well, it's it's a lot of stuff. It's eight hours yeah. of nothing but push ups, sit ups, running, shit. bags, <laughs> kegs, weights, climbing. <laughs> I mean, just everything you can think of that's physical. And at the end of that eight hours, you had to fight. Oh man! <laughs> and uh, you were so exhausted you couldn't lift your arms, but you had to fight. Yeah, you had to keep going. And so once you pass that. It usually took a guy's week, at least a week, to recover from that tryout. And then you start your training. You live in the house, you stay there for a year, six months, however long it took, and you do nothing but eat, sleep, and train. And uh, I created six world champions in that process. Amazing. Um, nowadays, you can't do that because just people won't put themselves through that kind of tryout yeah. because you can go down the street to another gym and they'll get you a fight in a week even though you don't have the experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but those guys don't last as long no, usually unless they they're but, a special type of fighter, but, right? But, but again, like I said, most people uh, don't see the idea to go ahead and put yourself through that kind of training when someone else is saying, here, let me give it to you for free. Yeah, it's like, hey, do you want a Navy SEAL badge right. or do you want to actually go through? This, <laughs> but you're not going to actually have to earn it. Yeah. But yeah. I'm going to give it to you. Yeah. You know, 90% of people are going to take the shortcut. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So looking back on your career, is there any, um, there's a couple questions I have. Is there any regrets that you have in terms of uh, fighting someone? Is there something that you did that you maybe took it too far on or off or outside the uh, octagon? Is there anything where you feel like maybe you put a thumping on someone too hard or... Whatever, I'm just just curious about that, because I mean, you know, I get a question all the time about, yeah. you know, what would you do differently and this and that. And the thing is, is that we don't have that we don't have that um, option. Yeah, it's yeah. It's not an option. And to be able to try to dream about something like that only gets you into trouble. Yeah. You know, we live life and we make mistakes and it's we have to move on. To me, it's more about when you do something and you make that mistake. How do you come back from that? How do you yep. recover from that? How do you make it better? Mm-hmm. And really, that's the question: is about listen, you make mistakes, but you got to move on, and you can't dwell on that, even though maybe it's something really bad. Yeah. But you got to move on. And yeah, you did it. You pay for it later. Whatever your thoughts and your beliefs are, um, in the afterlife, whatever it is, mm-hmm. you know, your time will become when you'll pay for those things. But in life, you've got to let it go, of and course. you have to move on. Don't make the same mistake again. Don't let it happen again. Because you've already experienced it. You know how and you know what not to do. That's great wisdom, especially like on this podcast. Sometimes we don't uh, have very good wisdom. <laughs> Sometimes uh, <laughs> you yeah, get a little yeah. dicey on here. But, uh, <laughs> thanks a lot, Ken. <laughs> so much for that. Is there, is there um, I guess, uh, outside of the octagon, what's the best scrap you've ever been in? Just toe-to-toe. Is it, who... 
do you do you remember the guy's name or was it just like a story? Do you remember who? What was the best fight you've been I, in? I, you know, this is God's honest truth, man. I've never been in a scrap where I had to just knock somebody out. That's awesome. I'm serious. It's true. Oh yeah. The, well, yeah. That wasn't a scrap. That was the same thing. It was a guy named I don't want to say his name, but the guy <laughs> in Susanville. Yeah. The guy was probably 260 pounds. He's about six four. Um, there was this girl that I had been going out with, not seriously, man. I was just kind of just sporting her. And uh, so we're driving, and me and two of my friends are in the car. And uh, <laughs> one of my friends, Billy Burke, that was Rick Radosovich, and I'm driving my dad's 57 Cadillac, I want to be ripped, completely restored. Yeah. We're going to this party, and also this truck's in front of us, right? So we're driving. All of a sudden, I see this truck stop. And all of a sudden, this dude gets out, and it's Ron Sanchez. I've said his name. So <laughs> we can edit it out if you want. <laughs> so he gets out of the truck, and then I see this girl's head poking out the back window looking at me going saying something and and Ron's getting out of the truck and I'm looking and like I'm not I don't it's like I'm not putting it together because we're not really together together yeah and so I'm getting so I get out of my car and, I, and Ron throws his beard and it skips across my dad's hood oh shit and I was like oh dude you're so dead and so he why are you following us and I was like what? <laughs> Why are you following us? She's not with you. And I'm thinking to myself, are they joking? He's like, I'm not fine. I'm going to a party. Yeah. <laughs> I'm looking for something you else. You pulled over and stopped in front of me. I yeah. said, I can't run over you. <laughs> so he jumps up. He comes towards me. And when he throws that beer across the car, and then he starts to take a swing at me. Like, and he's a big dude. I think I was probably 190, 195 pounds then. And he goes to swing at me, and I hit him. Bam! And he's got Birkenstocks on. He had these slippers on, right? And yeah. I hit him. 260. Literally lifted him out of his sandals onto the ground. Oh, shit. Hits the ground, right? His sandals are still in the sand. <laughs> Just smoking. So Billy screams at me, get in the car. <laughs> so we get in the car, pull up, pull around, and go try to run over him. And we go to this party. We're only there for about 10 minutes, and all of a sudden, the talk starts. Yeah. So Billy says, we got to go. Let's get out of here. Because cops are going to come, right? So we go, we get the car, we go home. Well... Billy jumps in and he's my dad was up. He always waits for us to get home. It's about one, one, two, one o'clock in the morning. So Billy goes, dude, you just saw it. <laughs> so he starts, because I'm trying to explain that like, he's got a scratch on his hood. <laughs> yeah. So Billy said, Oh, you gotta see it, because I was talking the whole time. How am I gonna explain it? Just tell him. So Billy jumps in, he goes, hey man, you should have saw it. Ken got out of the car and Billy didn't run through a beer and skipped across the trunk of his car. And as he heard that he kind of lit up a little bit. He says, But then Ken knocked him out. And he was like, Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, well. <laughs> As we're talking about it, my dad was like kind of smiling and laughing about yeah. the story and everything and went and checked his car and wasn't that bad. He could yeah. buff it out and we came back in the phone rings. <laughs> this was probably two o'clock in the morning now. Yeah. So my dad picks up the phone and goes, hello, and it's Ron. And Ron's screaming like with the slurring kind of, you can hear me. She's like, I'm going to come out and kick his ass. And we had a standing in the home with 18 boys. Oh, man. Like, if you had a beef with somebody, you go out back, put yeah. gloves on, we'll serve popcorn and coke. Yeah. Like, bring guys from town, whatever. We'll just go out back and settle it. Yeah. And so my dad says, okay, Ron, come on out. Come you know on down. Rule. You know our rule. You come out. You can Ron fight. Sanchez, come yes, on down. Yes, he, did. <laughs> he, did. He, goes, he goes, come on down. And so he hangs up the phone. So my dad goes, hey, Ron's coming out. He wants to fight you. And so I get literally go from calm to hype. Like, Here we go. Going, Ron, come on, kill him. I'm going to kill him. And I'm strutting around. It's 30 minutes later, the phone rings again. Yeah. My dad picks it up. He goes, Mr. Sheriff, <laughs> he goes, my dad goes, yes, Ron. He goes, 
I've never been hit so hard in my life. <laughs> <laughs> I, won't, I won't be going out. <laughs> oh, no. The price was wrong, Ron. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's hilarious. Oh, that's so funny. And the, how, how are we for time? Are you guys... Yeah, maybe like one more. Yeah, uh, sure, sure. Ken, I was going to ask. You're telling the story where the guy tried to sue you, where they cut you off, and you had to give them a name, and you knocked it. Oh, that'd be funny. Was it the was it the trucker? Yeah. And then that's how they knew. Oh, that was that was sooner. Yeah, that was yeah. yeah, that was sooner. So I understand there's a story about a guy that cut you off. Ryan didn't even tell them because I did a trucker one time too. It was in Sacramento. I knocked him out. My <laughs> wife was pregnant at that time. He came at me to the bar, and I ended up knocking him out. But there was just one actually. We were going. Uh, this was like uh, maybe eight years ago. Yeah. Uh, I was coming home and we were all at the amusement park. We went to the amusement park. I had all my grandkids with me. My wife had her Porsche and there was two kids in the car with her. She was in front of me. We were on our way home. So we come to this light, right? Well, she made it through the light and she's going home. And we're yeah. probably two blocks away from our house. Well, I'm in this light and there's like four lanes. Well, as we're going home, we had a problem with this guy that was in this truck. And he was trying to pull up and cut off. And so I'm like looking behind me. And I just cut him off. Like, yeah. I'm, you like, know. Get out of here, buddy. Right, there's traffic yeah. here. Where are you going? Yeah. Well, we come up the light and we stop. So I'm looking back. Well, this dude pulls up in the far right-hand lane. I'm in the turn lane. Far right-hand lane into the dirt, pulls over, and gets out of his truck. Now, there's two dudes in it. Now, I got all my grandkids in a minivan. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> right? So there's, so, it's, there's it's, another it's, level of uh, protective rage like, that's coming out, yeah, too, right? Yeah, so there's two guys getting out of the truck. And there's all these cars stopped at this, this light. So he's walking in between all these cars coming to my vehicle. So I roll down the window. My kid is in the front seat, and I push him backwards, right? And I go, you come one step closer to my car, and I'm getting out. I'm knocking the shit out of you, right? And so he keeps coming. So I get out of my car. My kid's going, Dad, Dad. He's probably about 13 at the time. Dad, Dad. And I was yeah. like, don't get out. Stay in the car. Because like, <laughs> one of them was 13, the other one was 15. Yeah. Um, and then I had ones that were two or three, my, yeah. my, my nieces. And so I get out, and I come around my car. And this dude's probably maybe six foot. But he's probably 250, big 260, enough. big fat guy. He yeah. had a chef's uniform on. Oh, like he's shit. just got off work. <laughs> this other kid's coming, and he's thinner, a little bit bigger, right? He comes at me, he takes a swing at me, and I hit him. Bam! Right <laughs> next to my vehicle, he lands on the ground. Bam! He's out. <laughs> this kid jumps on my back, and so I go to throw him up, and I go to hit him, and he takes off running. Yeah. Thank God, because that kid was his son, and he was 17 years old. Oh, no. So I was like, thank God he did run, right? Yeah, because so he didn't want to beat up a 17-year-old. No, so everybody it. stopped at this light, right? Now, nobody's moving when the fight's going. The right turns green. Nobody's moving. They're yeah. all watching Everyone's this, watching. Right? <laughs> so the cops show up, and all those cars are still there. Like, nobody's yeah. moving. <laughs> so he's sitting on, when the cars come up, this guy's sitting on the curb on the other side. <laughs> and there was a truck on the far side. That was an off-duty police officer comes across the center divider, pulls my keys out of the ignition while I'm trying to get back into my car to leave the scene. Yeah. He pulls the keys out, says you're not going anywhere. So I open my door. He goes, I'm a police officer. I go, good thing you identified yourself. <laughs> yeah, you're about, I was to... about ready to light you up. <laughs> he goes, you can't leave because this is a crime scene. And I oh. was like, he came after me. He says you can't leave. Just yeah. being a dick. Yeah. But anyway, so I'm sitting there. The guy's sitting on the curb across, we're waiting for the other police to show up. This off-duty police officer has my keys, and he's pouring blood out of his mouth as he's sitting there, like, right? So the cops come up, and so he takes the statement, and this off-duty police officer's being a dick, yeah. saying that I hit him and I started, just really being a dick. Well, the cop on the other side, they're all like, that's Shamrock. 
That's yeah. Ken Shamrock. They knew who I was. Yeah. So they come over and they asked me what happened. I said, dude, he came over to me. He said he swung. He said, well, he said that he got out of his truck and you went over to him and you started it. And I said, hey, let me clarify one thing for you and I'll make it really clear right now what happened. Where's his teeth? Yeah. His teeth is laying by my vehicle. Yeah. So in other words, how could I beat him up over his vehicle if his yeah. teeth laying by my vehicle? That's where I hit him. <laughs> so they looked yeah. down and said, well, some good dental case, case closed. Good dental forensics by Ken yeah. Shamrock. Yeah, so they went over there and literally looked at the dude and said, hey, man, you lied to me. Oh, he yeah. He no, man, you tell me. I said, well, well, how did your teeth get all the way over there by his vehicle? He put him there. It's like there's a blood spot. It's all there. He's like, well, okay, whatever. He says, I guess you messed with the wrong guy today, didn't you? Oh, that's so funny. Imagine, imagine that, eh? Just getting into a road rage fight. And then, it's, yeah, it's Ken Shamrock. Yeah, that would be my life. Yeah. Oh, this guy wants to, oh, fuck. Yeah, then my wife pulls up after all this is happening. She's just starting to get over. She pulls up and she's shaking her head like, Oh, no. <laughs> He's like, not again. Oh, yeah. This, not again, Ken. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Well, yeah. honestly, thank you so much for, for doing this. This is a huge honor for us to have you on the podcast. You're one of our favorites, and uh, it's so great to have you here. And uh, thanks to Ryan Denis for uh, helping uh, set this up. It's absolutely great. Is there anything you want to plug? you got a book coming out? Is it you saying? Yeah, it, um, actually, Jonathan Snowden's writing a book right now. Amazing. It should be out in 2019. Um, it's going to be... Like we're talking about here, it's all real from my childhood birth to, you know, the adoption, the group yeah. homes, the trouble, juvenile hall, into group homes, into my pro life. Mm -hmm. So it's the whole story and it's all, it's, it's even things that probably I wouldn't want to talk about, but because he's writing it. Yeah, it makes it a little bit easier to. It's his story about how everybody else saw me through their eyes. Oh, cool. So all these other people, he talked to my family members, he's talked to all my friends, high school friends people in juvenile hall, people that I did trouble with, all of this. So it's all through someone else's eyes. So it's going to be... My phone didn't ring. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 not yet. You'll be the next book, eh? Yeah, we, we, You've been around a lot. You'll yeah, be the next book, right? Yeah, we'll go. <laughs> so, so that's me. So Ken's new book's coming out in 2019. Keep your eyes open for that, and uh, you, you'll be able to get it online on your website. What's your website? Yeah, it's uh, kenshamrock.com. Very easy All to find. All my social sites are on there. So. Absolutely. Get, get it, uh, and uh, make sure if you're a fight aficionado or you like this podcast... Make sure you get the book, and uh, or it's a great gift for the person in your family that, that loves that and loves MMA and all that. So thank you so much uh, for being here. And guys, uh, make sure you keep listening to Fight Stories. You can get us at, at Fight Stories Pod on Twitter. Um, at Fight Stories, uh, I think that's what it is on hey, Instagram. Got, Check I, us out. All i got to say is this, man. If you think you've got problems and your life's all coming apart, just read my book. You'll feel better. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it'll get you through. It'll get you through. <laughs> awesome, guys. Yeah, thanks again. This is, this has been great. And uh, you're listening to Fight Stories. And, uh, yeah, that was Ken Shamrock. What an amazing episode. Thank you. Guys, thanks for listening to Fight Stories. We are having a great time making this podcast. We're getting some great guests. And the feedback has been awesome. If you want to support the show, you can do it in two ways. Way number one, money. We're on Patreon now, so check out Fight Stories. Anything we get, we're pumping right back into the podcast. We're trying to get bigger, better, and better. Secondly, continue to subscribe and share, and please rate the podcast on iTunes. This one is the one he wants to hear the fight story so well. You hear that, Ryan? We appreciate you.
We're on Instagram at Fight Stories Podcast, on Twitter at Fight Stories Pod, and on Facebook, just plug in Fight Stories. Our ugly mugs are going to pop up. Support the fights. Fuck the arts. My dad needs some money. <laughs>